So, if it has not been obvious that today's service is brought by the B team, I don't know what could make it more plain. We have a lot. What'd you do? Take me out of the house? Never give your kid the opportunity to mute you with a microphone. I'm just saying. That's okay. I just needed to be brought down in the house a little bit. It was a little, little bit high. So, Danny approached me a couple of months ago about preaching today. And of course, anytime he offers me that opportunity, I say yes. And then, as is happening much, much, much more frequently than I would like to admit, I promptly forgot. And so I scheduled myself for a business trip leaving today, immediately after the service. And it's not a business trip in Jackson, Mississippi. It's not a business trip in Pascagoula or anywhere nearby. It's in Orlando. So I have to drive this afternoon with two of my coworkers to Orlando. And for the last month, I have been struggling and struggling and struggling to come up with a message on hope. <laughs> Isn't that the way? And so as I started putting this together, I started, I started reading, I started studying, I started gathering my thoughts. And, and here's the first thing that came to my mind as... I started building today's message. War, famine, slavery, human trafficking, natural disaster, family conflict, infanticide, fratricide, genocide, recession, military coup, civil unrest, riots, corrupt governments. Yeah. Now that sounds like I am reading a synopsis of the daily news, doesn't it? I mean, that's every day, every news outlet. It doesn't matter if it's MSNBC, if it's Fox News, if it's CNN, if it's BBC News, even if it's Al Jazeera. It doesn't, they all have the same stuff to report. Even something as innocuous as the World Cup soccer tournament has been riddled with controversy. And it's not controversy like this country's fans started a riot. No, it's controversy because they're hosting it in a country that has a very poor human rights record. So I'll be honest with you, what I read... All of those words, they are from today's headlines and yesterday's and probably tomorrow's.
but it's not new. We shouldn't call it news because there's nothing new about it. This isn't novel. It's not something unheard of. In fact, these headlines have been in existence since Genesis chapter 3. Within one generation, one generation from creation, there was fratricide. You had Adam and Eve, you had Cain and Abel, you had brother killing brother. One generation. Within another handful of generations, there was a war. In roughly ten generations, according to Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 6, the world had become so wicked that God brought the flood to destroy all men. We are talking less than 20 generations of mankind before God hit the reset button. Three or four generations after the flood, after all of mankind was destroyed, we learned our lesson and built the Tower of Babel so that we could be on the same level as God. I could really just keep going on and on and on and on. It doesn't get any better. It really doesn't. The history of Israel, the history of the world, is filled with the consequences of sin. That should not surprise you. Really, it should not surprise you. And I'm, I'm really, I, I know y'all have heard Danny say this, but, but I will echo the sentiment. I'm going to quit using the phrase that nothing can surprise me anymore because human depravity seems to have hit rock bottom and continues to dig. But this is the world after the fall. So instead of going through this and just just continuing to depress everybody, I'm going to have you read the words of Solomon. Our passage for today, (laughs) written by Solomon, granted wisdom by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is from the book of Ecclesiastes. Because that's an uplifting and hopeful book, isn't it? Now, we're reading from the New English translation, and I'm going to wager a guess that probably with the exception of Kira, Warren, Allen, because he copied it into the Easy Worship Today, and Steph, probably most of you have never heard of the New English trans- excuse me, translation. Um, I was introduced to it back in 2000. It was a brand new translation. They were in the process of finishing the Old Testament in 2000-2001. It is a 100% new translation. They went back to the manuscripts, the the originals as far as we can go. Of course, we don't have the original documents, uh, but to the, the existing documentation that we have, and they did a completely new translation of the Scriptures. It was written for the digital age. It was originally published only online. And the cool thing about the New English translation is it has more study notes and textual translator's notes than any other 
translation. If you want to know why a certain word was translated a certain way, the New English translation is the study Bible to use. No, I do not get compensated by that. However, the reason I want to use the New English translation this morning is because it it really is in modern English. Now, I don't have a problem with the older English translations. I am not an anti-King James person. I like the New King James. I like the New American Standard. I like the English Standard. That's what I use most of the time myself. But there's something about English in today's world that makes a splash to everybody who's in the room. This really speaks to the human condition. So I'm going to ask you all, as we normally do, I know you've done a lot of calisthenics this morning, but up on your feet one more time. No, we are not trying to be Catholic. That was a joke. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) No, we, we are standing... Because this is God's Word, I want to remind everybody, we stand in respect for God's Word. So if you will, read along with me. Futile, futile, laments the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile. What benefit do people get from all the effort which they expend on earth? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same through the ages. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries away to a place from which it rises again. The wind goes to the south and circles around to the north. Round and round the wind goes and on its rounds it returns. All the streams flow into the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. What exists now is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing truly new on earth. Thank you. Please have a seat. Like I said, this is a great passage on the idea of hope. This is a phenomenal... I mean, Solomon really nailed the human condition, didn't he? Like I said, I have wrestled with this for weeks. Every time I sat down to work on this, the only thing that kept coming to my mind was how hopeless... The world seems right now. For the last few months, I have been really sensitive to the attendance numbers on Sunday morning. Now, what you don't realize, okay, there's very people, very few people who do realize this, is that every Sunday morning we take an attendance. We do a count. It's recorded in the sound booth and Pam comes over on Monday and copies it over into the, uh, the church accounting system. All right. Now, in order to do that, we have to physically count the people that are here. Alan is in charge of that. Mm-hmm. Alan is in charge of that because he sits there in the sound booth. But there are some seats that Alan cannot see. And so, as a double check, 
Bill sits up here at the drums, and if you pay close attention sometimes when things are going on, Bill is counting the people in the church. And I communicate that to Alan. He double-checks it. We account for people who come in during the middle of the service, so on and so forth, and we get a full count. Every week, every week, the attendance number just seems to get a little bit smaller. And not just attendance, but as I do the count, because my brain is a little bit strange, I pay attention to little things when I'm counting who's here. Like how many people we have in the sanctuary any given morning who are under the age of 40. This morning I would tell you we have somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight, maybe ten. How many people we have under the age of 20? About six, maybe less. Yeah, less, four. No, five. I always forget about it, that little hairball in the back there with that one. How many guests we have? How many guests we average in a month? How many guests come back after the first visit? And of course, as a former member of the finance committee, no, I am not volunteering. Just put that out of your mind. A long time ago, I understand how tithes and offerings work. And I understand that we have a very small pool of people that are regular attenders who are still actively in the workforce. How many people do we have that are on a fixed income because of retirement? I don't, it doesn't matter how big or small that income is, it's fixed. It does not change. The cost of living, on the other hand, has changed a lot. We have a handful of people that are too young to make any money in the workforce, and we have a whole lot of people who are on those fixed incomes, and I'm very, very, very aware of the budget that it takes to run the church. And so I know that there is a heavy load on a small number of people. Then, I go home, and I often turn to the internet for a little bit of, I don't know, mind-numbing, and I see the headlines, mass shootings, three of them in the last week, hate crimes, at least two of those in the last week. This politician is indicted for fill-in-the-blank. Mudslinging, hatred, division, conflict, the economy's crashing, inflation's out of control. Okay, so the news isn't uplifting at all. So I turn to social media for humor because there are some funny things posted out there online. I don't know why cats jump away when they see cucumbers, but it's fun to watch. Okay, it just is. 
And I scroll by on Facebook, I scroll by the news feeds of many of my Christian friends and family members. I've got a lot of you guys as friends on Facebook. And they read just like the headlines. This politician is causing this issue. This denomination is supporting this sin. These people are trying to do fill in the blank. It really is easy to take on the mindset of Solomon in that passage that we read. It really is easy to just throw your hands in the air and say, what is the point? Isn't it our mission as Christians to be making the world into a better place? I hate to be the one to tell you this, but the answer is no. That is not the Great Commission. That is not the Great Commandment. That is not a command in Scripture at all. We are commanded to love God with all of our being. Remember the Pharisees came to Jesus and they wanted to trap him. They wanted to get him to say that one of the commandments was less significant than the other nine. And so they said, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? The greatest commandment is to love your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. By the way, in ancient Near Eastern society, he covered all aspects of humanity. Your heart is where your will resides. That's where you choose to do things. Your soul is what makes you a living being. Your mind is your seat of volition. It is where you think and process. And your strength is your physical body. So love God with everything that you've got. And then he said, oh, and the second is like it. Like as in similar to, as in equal to. Back when I took English classes, I was one of those kids that always used to to battle the difference between a metaphor and a simile, right? Anybody else have that issue? Or was it just me? Okay, I could never get those two straight. Jesus said the second is like it. That's a simile. It uses the word like. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you love yourself? Not in an unhealthy way. Let let me ask a question. How many of you slept in a bed of some sort last night? Even if it was the couch or the recliner, right? There was still a cushion underneath you. Okay, how many of you had a blanket or a, a comforter, a duvet, whatever, some kind of covering? And how many of you had some kind of climate control in your house that was probably set to the wrong temperature by the other person in the house. (laughs) Now, how many of you, when you woke up this morning, had breakfast? And if you didn't, is it because you're that kind of person who just doesn't eat breakfast? I can't function that way. Okay? How many of you had a cup of coffee this morning? Because the brain does not function without the coffee. 
Okay? So, let me ask you then, do you love yourself? Yeah. Do you love your neighbor the same way? Are you willing to go out and make sure that your neighbor, which for broad definition is anybody in humanity that has a pulse, do you make sure that your neighbor has a place to sleep? With a blanket and a cushion or climate control? Do you make sure your neighbor has something to eat or a cup of coffee or basic human comfort? That's what it means to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That is the commandment that we are given. That's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He summed up all ten in those two. And we are commissioned. Now, Jesus gave us a task. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. How are we doing? Okay, let's narrow it down. Go into Mississippi and make disciples of all counties. How we doing? Okay, go into Harrison or Jackson County and make disciples of all your neighbors. How we doing? I didn't even get to the second part of the commission. Because the second part of the commission says, teaching them all that I have commanded you. How are we at teaching other people what Scripture says? The church can be summed up in those two things. The great commandment, love God with all you've got, love your neighbor as yourself, and the great commission, go make disciples of all people and teach them what Jesus commanded. Where does that say anything about making the world a nicer place? Now, the natural outcome, if we're doing those things, if we are loving God the way we're supposed to, and we're loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we're making disciples of people and teaching them what Jesus commanded, what will be the natural outcome? The world should become a nicer place. Because more people will be loving their neighbors. But we need to recognize something. And that recognition is that we are in the minority in the world. Contrary to some opinions, God's people have always been and will always be in the minority. Always. This morning in our Sunday school lesson, we talked about uh, Samuel and his mother Hannah. And you know what makes Hannah stick out so much in the Old Testament? Is her singular devotion to God. Now think about this. This woman was married. Her husband had another wife. The other wife had had plenty of children. Hannah was barren. Hannah prayed for a son. 
And in God's time, God gave her a son. And as part of that prayer, she said, if you give me that son, he will be dedicated to the Lord. Now, not too long before that, we had Samson's parents. Similar situation, right? And God gave them a son, and he was, quote, dedicated to the Lord. How'd that work out? But here's what Hannah did. When she weaned her son Samuel, she took him to the house of the Lord and handed him over to the priests to be raised, dedicated to the Lord. The son that she was the most eager for, the son that she had prayed earnestly for because she was being abused because she didn't have any children, she handed that son over. When she said dedicated, she meant it. That's why she sticks out in the story of Scripture. Is because of that dedication. We are always in the minority. And God has a very specific plan for our lives. Would you like to... Have you ever wondered what God's plan for your life is? You know, when you're young... As a young Christian, you know, what's God's plan for my life? That typically translates into who should I marry and where should I work? That's, that's really what that turns into. But you know, the Bible te- says that God's plan for our life is our sanctification. is for us to grow into the image of Christ. That's His will for our life. We have freedom of movement in there, but we have boundaries. And we have a way to do that. But his will for our life is to not, is not to try to make the world into heaven on earth. His will for our lives is our sanctification. And his direction for our life is to be about making disciples. We are promised. By Jesus himself. I love it when Jesus makes a promise. I love it when Jesus makes a promise. Because we know that God's promises come true, right? Jesus makes a promise. That we will face strife, hatred, persecution, and death because of him. Now see, you guys are all going to petition Danny. When he comes back, don't let Bill preach again, man. He's a downer. This is horrible for encouragement for the day of hope. But see, when Jesus promises those things, persecution wouldn't happen in a world that is becoming more like heaven, would it? We're promised. Jesus said, Jesus says, remember when they persecute you, when they hate you. He doesn't use the word if. He uses the word when. It is an expectation. It is going to happen. When they persecute you, they persecuted me first. When they hate you, they hated me first. That kind of thing would not happen if the world was becoming 
more like heaven. The world we live in is always going to be a majority of the result of sin. And oh, by the way, we contribute just as much as everybody else does. Because while I asked all those questions about the good things that we did this morning, like, you know, sleeping in a bed and waking up and having coffee and breakfast and all that kind of stuff, I didn't ask the question, how many of you have sinned this morning? I drove on Pass Road, I'll admit it. That means I passed somebody that was driving the speed limit because I was going faster. And oh, by the way, if they were in the left-hand lane, I probably thought some not-so-nice things about that person. Because they're in my way. You know, Paul tells the Roman church, very specifically, if you would, flip with me to chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. And once again, I forgot to bring my bigger print Bible with me this morning. We're going to start in verse 14, and we'll go on until I stop. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul tells us how to live in this world that is opposed to the things of God. Opposed to basic Christian values. Makes it pretty clear. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Why would he write this to the church in Rome?
Raise your hand if you know who the emperor was in Rome when Paul wrote this. It was Nero. Now, Nero, (laughs) when Paul wrote this, Nero was about 16 years old. And he had not yet gone crazy. The crazy part, the persecution part that Nero is accused of, doesn't happen until he's closer to 20 uh, after he has his mother put to death. Go figure, that caused him to lose his mind. But up to the point where Paul wrote this letter, Nero was actually pretty benign. Nero was actually considered to be a pretty good emperor at this point. In fact, Nero even allowed the Jews to come back into Rome. It was his predecessor, Claudius, who had ordered the expulsion of all the Jews, which would have also included the Jewish Christians. So Paul told the church in Rome, don't curse the people that chased you out. Don't curse the people who are persecuting you. Bless them. Pray for them. Be subject to the government. I know I'm going to get some hate mail on this. You may not like our current government. I don't have that big of a problem with the two people who sit at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the 535 that sit down the road in the House and the Senate that I have a problem with. However... They are there because God permitted it. Now, he may have permitted it because that's who he wanted in office. What? Maybe it was to cause the church to re-examine how we're doing it being the church. Maybe it was to cause us to understand that we have atrophied for the last 200 years in this country. Precisely for the reason that we have the freedom to gather here. Back when I was on active duty, I was required to exercise. It might be hard to tell, but once I retired, I quit. (laughs) Just stopped. Like hard stop, full-on brakes, air brakes, emergency brake, the whole nine yards. The reason we exercise, the reason people lift weights is because the, the resistance of that weight, when you pull the muscles and you contract them, it causes the muscles to strengthen. Well, our muscles as a church haven't had anything to push against. Maybe the government is uh, here for a reason. Now I want to tie this all together because noon is approaching and I want you to have some hope. (laughs) That was a joke. Jeez, tough crowd. At this time of the year, this Advent season, the candles, the banners, the songs that were chosen. Our emphasis today has been on the idea of having hope. 
And in the world, apart from Christ, apart from living what God wants us to do, apart from living in the way that we are commanded over and over and over again in Scripture to live, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot. In the Advent season, we focus in two different directions, time-wise. Okay? The first, we look back at the first coming of Jesus. The first Advent. Jesus, the Christ. Second person of the Trinity. The eternal Son, who put aside His glory for a time and put on the flesh of humanity to live with his people for about 30 years in what could considered to could be considered to be one of the humblest of circumstances born in a stable slept in a feed trough lullabied to sleep by the sound of cattle and goats and sheep He was tempted, just like you and I are, but he didn't sin. And even though he never committed a sin, even though there was no sin in him, he was crucified. He received the penalty of death. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take your hand. Everybody has to play along. I want you to take your hand. Nope. Not taking pulses this time. I want you to take your hand. I want you to t- take your, take your index finger and point it out like this. Okay, straight ahead, straight ahead of you. Okay, just like this. Okay. Now what I would like you to do is take that index finger and go like this and point at yourself. That person that you are pointing at is the person that Jesus died for. But because he was perfectly sinless, he didn't earn death. That's hard to to wrap our heads around, isn't it? Because I don't know anybody who's sinless. Never met somebody who's sinless. Every person I have met has sin. Every person I know earns the penalty of death. Jesus didn't. The wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't earn those wages. And so if if you want to look at it this way, like if your boss overpays you in a paycheck, woohoo! What's the right thing to do? Give it back. Boy, we got some practice to do in here. All right, so your boss gives you extra money. The right thing to do is to give it back. Jesus got death. And so on the third day, what did he do? He gave it back. And he rose on the third day. And then he didn't just immediately rise and go poof up to heaven. He walked around for a time with his disciples, to show them that all of his promises were true. And then he ascended to the Father where he sits and rules today. That's our focus 
in the past. The other direction for our focus, and I'm so glad Natalie went there this morning, should be to look forward to the second advent of Jesus. Because you know he's coming back, right? If you don't know that, surprise, Jesus is coming back. No, I don't know when. Scripture tells us that he will return in triumph. And we will be with him forever. So how do we have hope in this world that is so broken and messed up? Remember that bit about Jesus walked around with his disciples after he was raised? Remember where he was on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples that were bummed out? And Jesus is like, what, what's up? What's, why is everybody so sad? Are you the only guy in Jerusalem that didn't hear about Jesus? What are you, dense man? And so they told him and he said, well, isn't that what was supposed to happen? And he went all the way back and went through Scripture. Prophecy after prophecy, verse after verse, tale after tale. And said, this is, this is what was supposed to happen. He talked to him out of Isaiah. He talked to him out of Ezekiel. He talked to him out of all of the prophets, out of Daniel, he, out of the book of, of the law from Moses. He spoke to them about these things and said, why are you guys bummed? This is what Jesus came for. And when their eyes were finally opened, what did they do? Just sat around the house and, and said, man, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? No. Keep in mind, by the time their eyes were opened, it was already after dark. And you didn't try, they didn't have a car to hop into. Okay? They had to travel by road on foot in the dark where there was the possibility of highwaymen and brigands and thieves to steal their money, and they hightailed it from their house back to Jerusalem to say, guys, you ain't going to believe what just happened. They had hope. We can have hope because God's promises are true. We have this. Now, you may not have one of these here this morning. You might not have a paper copy of your Bible. I am not going to condemn you for not having a paper copy of a Bible in your hand. Okay? You may have an electronic version of the Bible on your phone. Or if you're like me, you may have 10 or 20 different electronic translations of the Bible on your phone. We have God's Word in abundance. We can read His promises. We can go back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had sinned. And God said, okay, here's the penalty for the sin. Adam, you know how you, you would tend the ground and fruit would grow and, and it was really kind of a, a, a decent time and you enjoyed yourself and that kind of thing? Here's what's going to happen. You're still going to do that. But the ground is going to grow thorns instead of growing fruit. It's going to grow weeds and thistles instead of growing the plants that you want. 
And those weeds and thistles are going to choke the fruit out. And so you're going to have to toil and work hard by the sweat of your brow just to get enough sustenance to eat because you decided that when I said you can have all the fruit in the garden that you want except that tree right there, you decided that was the tree you were going to eat from. And Eve, lest you think you get off easy, I'm going to increase the pains that you have in childbirth. By the way, he said increase. That means there was something already there. So the pain of childbirth is not the result of the sin. The increased pain from childbirth is the result of the sin. And then he said, your desire is going to be for your husband. And a lot of people read that and they say, how's that a curse? That's how it should be, right? You accept that word desire is the desire to be in charge of. We're not talking about a natural physical desire. We are talking about the desire to dominate. Which is why it's followed with, but he will rule over you. And then at the end of all that, what does he say? But you're going to bear a child. There's going to be the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman's going to do what? Come on. Crush the head of the serpent. Even giving us the bad news, God gave the promise. When he told Noah to build a giant box, by the way, that's what the ark is. It's not a, it's not a boat. It was not a luxury liner. It's a box. The word ark translates into box. Okay? The ark of the covenant was a box. Noah's ark was just a bigger one. When he told Noah to build a giant box to put all these animals into and to take his family and lock them up and it was going to rain for 40 days and his family would be preserved through that flood because this is something that happened before, right? He kept his word. When he told Abram that he would have a son by his wife, he kept his word. When he promised to deliver Jacob's family from slavery in Egypt, when he promised the land of Canaan to the people of Israel, when he promised his son, the Messiah, he keeps his promises. Even in a world that is so ugly right now. Even in a world that is so futile right now. So when Paul says that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called to be his people, that's one of God's promises. That means the bad stuff works together for the good of those who are called to be his people. War, famine, genocide, all of those things I listed off. Work together for the good of God's people. When Paul makes the statement in the book of Philippians, one of the most reassuring statements that I have found in the pages of Scripture, He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. 
Philippians 1 6. God will keep that promise. We can have hope, we should have hope, even in this world that seems so absolutely terrible right now because we have a God who is infinitely faithful. And no matter how bad things get, He will not abandon His children, even when we're persecuted, even when we are beaten for Jesus' sake, even when we face destruction for our faith, even when we are hungry, dirty, destitute, and without any worldly possessions, we are still children of the Most High God. And so I need to ask, are you his child? Do you have that hope? If the answer is no, then I'm going to encourage you to deal with God right now, where you are. I'm not going to make this awkward. I'm not going to say you have to walk all the way down here. You have to stand at the altar. We have to pray together. No, that's not how this works. You need to have a conversation with God. As we have a time of prayer, if the Holy Spirit has impressed upon you that you cannot claim that hope, that you are not one of His children, don't wait. Today may be the day that you pull out of this parking lot and get hit by a bus. When you're standing before the Almighty is not a time to say, but I was going to. Confess to God your need for salvation, the sin in your life that's kept you from Him. Ask His forgiveness and acceptance into His family. Ask for the cleansing of your soul by the sacrifices of His Son. It's, it's that simple.